On today's episode of Once Upon a Crime, I have a special treat for you. Because it's Halloween weekend, I'm going to do something a bit different. Instead of our usual true crime case, I'm going to share a story with you. Well, two stories that are creepy Halloween tales. These are stories that, depending on where you grew up or where your ancestors were from, you may or may not have heard before. I will simply tell you the tale for you to enjoy, and after that, I'll share a few insights about these legends and ghost stories and what they might mean. I didn't put a disclaimer on this episode, but you know how sensitive your kids or other family members might be to scary legends, so use your best judgment. Most people seem to love a good ghost story. There's something, it seems, that's hardwired in us to enjoy the rush of adrenaline we get when the zombie pops out at us at just the right time during a movie, or the feeling of the hair going up on the back of our necks when someone relates a weird ghost tale, or the way we jump at a noise when late at night we're alone reading a scary tale. And there are some ghost stories that seem to take on a life of their own. No one knows when the story really began, or who first told it, but more than likely, you have heard some version of it during your lifetime. I'm going to share two of those stories with you, at least one version of them, You may have heard a different one. These tales have morphed over the years, and depending on where you heard it, it might have sounded slightly different. But I hope you'll enjoy them. The first story is The Legend of Bloody Mary. It's a familiar scenario. You're on a camping trip and it's nighttime. Or you're hanging out with friends at night. Maybe it's a sleepover. And someone begins to tell scary stories that they swear are true. Then, someone brings up the story of Bloody Mary. And by the end of the story, someone dares you to look into a darkened mirror and repeat three times, Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody... But you stop short of the third recitation of the name. Because if you do, something horrible will happen. Just who was Bloody Mary? And why is saying her name the worst thing you could do in the dark? This is the tale of Bloody Mary. Mary Bloodsworth lived in a forest in a small cottage near Boston, Massachusetts in the mid-1700s. Mary sold herbal remedies for a living. She was not married and she had no children. She was very beautiful and the women of the village were jealous of her and afraid her beauty and her strange solitude made her a threat. They were afraid that their husbands would stray. In their jealousy, they said mean and cruel things about her, calling her a witch and saying she was ugly and would never marry or have children. Then the young girls, daughters of the townspeople, began to go missing. They disappeared one by one, and no one could figure out where they had gone. The frantic families searched the woods, all the homes and the barns, but there was no sign of the missing girls. It didn't take long for some of the villagers to accuse Mary of stealing their children to perform witchcraft on them. Some of them even searched near Mary's house. One man in particular was seen in the area of her cottage several times. But no one could find any evidence of the missing girls or Mary's involvement in the disappearances. One night, one of the villagers, a local miller, heard his front door open and close. Everyone in the home had already gone to bed for the night, so he rose to see who could be opening his door. He didn't see anyone in the house, but when he opened the front door to the outside he could see his eldest daughter walking across the large expanse in front of the home 
moving towards the woods. He called her name, but she didn't turn or respond. He began to call, more loudly now, as he moved swiftly to follow her and find out what in the world she could be doing. His wife, woken by his shouts, came hurrying out of the house. She saw her daughter, now edging closer to the woods, wearing only a nightgown with her husband in pursuit. She began to run to her daughter now, calling her name and pleading with her to stop. But, as if in a trance, she kept moving towards the woods. Finally, her father was able to catch up with her, but it took all his strength to keep the girl from breaking away from him. He saw no recognition in her eyes that she could hear him or even that she recognized him. It was as if she was bewitched. Her mother, now reaching them, was startled to see a pair of glowing eyes just inside of the tree line that marked the entrance to the woods. There, she could make out the figure of Mary Bloodsworth. Her hair hung loose and looked wild. Her eyes flashed blackly in the moonlight. She was wearing a white dress or a gown. In her hand was some sort of stick or wand that was pointed directly at the young girl. When Mary saw that the girl's mother had spotted her, she quickly turned and ran back into the woods. Soon after, the young girl seemed to wake as if she'd been sleepwalking, and she had no idea why she was outside in her nightgown. Now the townspeople were convinced that Mary Bloodsworth was a witch. A mob formed and they gathered their guns and other weapons to round up the witch. When they reached the cabin and broke in to grab her, she gave out an inhuman screech and cursed all the women of the village as she was dragged off in chains. Mary was thrown into jail to await trial. In those days, judges and counsel had to be summoned from the city to mete out justice in the villages, so it was some time before the trial was to commence. Meanwhile, the jailers began to notice that Mary was with child. They commanded that she tell them who the father was. She refused. They threatened if she did not, she would also be tried for adultery. She still would not talk. Now the villagers began to gossip and speculate as to who the father could be. Since she was a witch, some said, she must be impregnated with Satan's child. They brought their suspicions before the judge, and he concurred that this child must be of demonic origins. He ordered the child to be killed upon birth. At the trial, it was quickly concluded that Mary was a witch who had lured the villagers' children to the woods, where she must have murdered them and used their bodies for demonic purposes. She would be killed, but first, the women of the village would each be allowed to slash her in the face with sharp glass for the murder of their children. Mary Bloodsworth was hung on Christmas Day, 1741, near the Boston Latin School in Boston, Massachusetts. Witches were often buried wrapped in chains and lying face down. This, it was hoped, would prevent the witch from returning to haunt them and take the souls of those they had cursed while on earth. But this didn't seem to stop Bloody Mary, as she was now called. Not only was her anger directed at the townspeople for her own death, but also for the death of her child. People began to see Mary's face, horrible now to behold. The death mask was said to be completely white as devoid of blood. Her hair was black as a raven and sprang out wildly from her head, and her mouth was open, as if about to let out a terrible screech. Her white gown and her pale face were covered in blood. The chains, still wrapped around her, rattled and shook. She would most often be seen when a woman or girl was looking into a mirror, brushing her hair or checking her reflection. Suddenly, the ghostly apparition would appear rushing up behind the girl. 
Some girls screamed and fainted, falling to the floor in a heap, and some could never be revived, the fright stopping their hearts and killing them instantly. But years passed, and the story of Mary Bloodsworth seemed like just that, a story. Parents, particularly mothers, tried to pass the story along to their children, warning them not to be vain, not to spend their lives looking into mirrors, as teenage girls often do. They were warned that if they did, Bloody Mary would become jealous of their beauty and appear to terrify them. In more current times, children, especially teenagers, saw this as a challenge. They didn't take it seriously, but they liked the creepy ghost story, and they set out to challenge Mary to appear to them, thus proving the tale true or false. A ritual was created for this purpose. First, the dare had to be presented. Prove you're not scared, one would dare another, and call out to Bloody Mary to appear. The brave or gullible person would then be instructed to find a mirror, usually a bathroom mirror, but sometimes in a bedroom. The room must be darkened. Only one small candle was lit, or perhaps only the light of the moon was allowed to faintly illuminate the mirror. The person must then stand directly in front of the mirror while chanting three times, Bloody Mary. After the third time, Bloody Mary would appear in the mirror. If she appears, it is said, she will lash out at the person who has summoned her, sometimes scratching their eyes out or violently slashing at their faces. If you're lucky, she will just let out an inhuman screech before retreating back into the shadows of the mirror. But from then on, she will haunt you whenever you happen to look into a mirror. So go on. I dare you. There's a mirror just behind you. Light a candle on Halloween night. Call out to Bloody Mary. And if you survive, tell us your tale. (laughs) This next tale will probably be familiar to you if, one, you grew up in California, Arizona, New Mexico, or Texas, or two, you had a Mexican grandmother. Perhaps grandmothers from other Latin countries as well, but I know for sure Mexican grandmas use this story to make their grandchildren behave and go to sleep. Many of you probably have one of these stories, and if you do, please share it with me on the Twitter or Facebook page. But first, let me tell you mine. My grandparents, both sets, lived in a small town about 25 miles outside of Bakersfield, California. My grandmother on my mom's side was Catalina Espinosa, but we called her Grandma Katie. Grandma Katie was not a warm and fuzzy grandma. She didn't give lots of hugs or kisses. She didn't have pet names for her grandkids or spoil them much. But she was still a loving grandma. She'd be up early, I mean crack of dawn early, to make us the best homemade tortillas and all kinds of good food to eat. She would sometimes surprise her grandchildren with a small gift as well. But she expected you to be good. That means doing what you are told when you are told to do it. No questions asked. I'm guessing that that was how she was raised and how she raised her kids, four daughters, and how she expected them to raise us, her grandkids. We didn't live close to my grandparents. We had moved to Northern California before I was even born so my father could get a better job. But we would travel several times a year to go visit all the grandparents and stayed for several days and nights. One night when we were staying at my grandparents, my parents took the opportunity to have grandma babysit and they went out to visit with friends kid-free. Smart parents. 
Anyway, I remember I was lying in the living room, on the floor with a blanket and pillow watching TV. It was getting pretty late, and my grandma said it was time to go to bed. But I wanted to wait up for my parents to return. Grandma Katie said they probably wouldn't be back till very late, so I needed to go to bed now. Now, this was unlike me, but I wasn't having it. Instead of just obeying, I argued, saying, I'm not tired. I want to wait for my mom. You don't have to wait with me. You can go to bed. I'm going to stay here. Well, my grandma, being the smart lady she was, probably decided she wasn't going to argue with a six-year-old who was probably tired and cranky and getting ready to have a crying fit. So she just said, okay, stay up all night if you want to, but I hope La Llorona doesn't come and find you. Okay, good night. Of course, I said, who? And she responded, as if surprised by my ignorance, oh, you've never heard about La Llorona? Well, let me tell you. And now I will tell you. But just know this. After she told me the tale of La Llorona, I flew into the bedroom, jumped under the covers, and fell asleep just as soon as was humanly possible. Here's the tale of La Llorona. Once, a long, long time ago, there was a beautiful young girl named Maria who lived in a small village. She was beautiful but haughty. All the local boys, humble farmers and ranch hands, wanted to woo the lovely Maria, but she would turn her nose up at them. She was going to marry the most handsome man in the world, she'd tell herself, and he would be rich as well. One day, that handsome man rode into town. He was the son of a wealthy rancher. He was beautifully dressed and was known to be an expert horseman. Maria set her sight on him, but first she played hard to get. She knew her beauty could turn his head, but she also knew that she was a simple village girl and that he could have the admiration of any number of beautiful girls. So whenever he would smile and tip his hat at her, she would pretend not to notice him. He was intrigued. Now he vowed to win her heart. Maria prepared herself to catch his attention by wearing her finest outfit, a beautiful white dress that she knew laid up her long black hair, her flashing deep brown eyes, and her lips painted a bright red. She also wore high-heeled shoes that made a sharp clicking sound as she walked down the lane. She arrived at the town square where the young people met to mingle, listen to music, flirt, and dance. The young man sought her out, and finally she paid attention to him. He quickly fell in love and asked for her hand. The humble peasant girl was now the wife of a rich rancher. At first, all was wonderful for Maria. She lived in a beautiful house and in short order had two children, both sons. But not long after her sons were born, her husband began to spend less and less time at home. He'd say he needed to attend a ranch business in the city or further abroad, but she suspected he was seeing other women and that he was now bored with her. When he was home, he spent little time with Maria, only paying attention to his two boys. Maria became jealous, not only of the other women she suspected he was seeing, but of her own two sons as well. Maria was used to having the admiration of all the men in the village, and now her own husband ignored her. One day, when Maria was taking a walk along the river with her boys, her husband, who'd been gone for days, drove by in a carriage. 
He stopped the carriage and got out to hug and kiss his sons in greeting. He also spoiled them with gifts of candy. For Maria, there was nothing, not even a greeting. Maria seethed as she stood by the side of the road, ignored. But she was even more angry when she looked inside the carriage and saw that a younger woman, nicely dressed and obviously wealthy, was inside. She now had proof that her husband was two-timing her, and she was furious. Her husband and the woman drove off in the carriage, and Maria could not control her anger. She looked into the eyes of her two beautiful boys, and all she could see was the image of their cheating father. Enraged, and before she knew what she was doing, she picked up her sons one at a time and threw them into the river below. Seeing them sink into the dark waters, she screamed and ran down to them, but it was too late. The river had carried them away. Maria, as if in a daze, went home and put on her beautiful white dress and high heels. She returned to the riverbank and walked up and down, up and down, crying and calling out for her children. After a time, people nearby began to hear a woman's pitiful cries and followed the sound down to the river. They saw a woman in a white dress, now splattered with river mud and torn by the jagged rocks. Her face was frozen into a mask of grief. Her hair was wild and tangled by the wind. Some of the men climbed down towards the river to try and help the woman. But before they could reach her, she let out one last cry. Where are you, my children? And then she plunged herself into the river. The strong current carried her away, never to be seen again. From now on, the beautiful Maria, who had killed her own children and then taken her own life, would be known as La Llorona, which means the crying woman. But La Llorona's spirit could not rest. Having never found the children she had so coldly tossed into the river, she was now cursed to walk the earth searching for them. Her pitiful cries could be heard down by the riverbank night after night. The sound sent shivers up and down the spines of the people that heard it. But worse than that, some poor people would see the woman's ghostly figure, usually very late at night or in the early morning hours. She was hideous to behold. Her once beautiful face was a frozen death mask of grief and horror of what she had done to her children. Her once white dress was dirty and hung around her skeletal frame in tatters. Her hair was wild and tangled like Medusa, but it was her eyes that were the worst. They were black pools of dread. When you looked into them, you didn't see pupils, but the outline of a skull. If you didn't look away quickly, you would be hypnotized. And if you got too close, she would snatch you up and throw you in the river, screeching, Go! Find my children! And if you were a child who happened to be awake late at night, you might hear her, far away in the distance. It will start as a low sound, almost like the wind beginning to howl far away in the distance. And you might become curious and follow the sound. This is how she gets children to come to her. Before you can register what you're doing, you will be surprised by the ghostly figure of La Llorona. She calls the children, hoping to trick them to come to her. Then she will snatch you up as she did her own children and carry you off to the spirit world. Or if you struggle, she'll pitch you into the river. So children, beware. Mind your elders. Do not stay up late or play outside after dark because La Llorona will come to carry you off.
This is how my loving Grandma Katie scared the crap out of her grandchildren to make sure they went to bed early. Cruel, yes, but it worked. And that's a Mexican grandma for you. She don't play. Like most ghost stories, every time and place creates new variations to fit each situation. My family lived in the dry Central Valley of California. Not too many rivers there. But we still had a way to scare each other with the story of La Llorona. Remember how she walked up and down and up and down in her high heels looking for her children? Well, the town my grandparents lived in was very quiet and very hot during the summer. As pre-teens and teens, my cousins and I liked to stay outside long after dark where it was cool. Most homes had a short fence and a gate with a sidewalk running in front of it. We'd sit on the porch and usually end up telling ghost stories to scare one another. We'd dare each other to stand near the fence closest to the sidewalk and listen for the tap, tap, tap of La Llorona's high heels walking towards us. And I swear, we'd hear it. It would start off far away, in the pitch black and at the end of the block. And slowly, slowly, it would get a bit louder and a bit louder, coming closer and closer until we chickened out and ran into the house. Grandma didn't raise no fools. Yes, we love ghost stories for the thrill they give us. They scare us because they play into some of our oldest fears and serve as warnings as well. Many, many ghost stories have the element of in the woods, like in the Bloody Mary story. Mary, the suspected witch, lived outside of town in the woods. She lured the children into the woods. And think of all the old folk tales that warn of something bad happening in the woods. Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, Snow White, and the list goes on. Even in the true story of the Salem witch trials, the girls were said to go out into the woods where they cast spells. The woods often symbolize the unknown and sometimes the evil unknown. Woods are apart from civilized society. They are dangerous. Who knows what's out there? And if you mess around in the woods, you're asking for it. And everyone knows witches live in the woods. In the story of Bloody Mary, her first mistake was to live in the woods, placing herself apart from the normal villagers. The second mistake, it seems, was to use herbs and natural things as healing potions. Some of the stories tell us that she was valued for these remedies. There was no modern medicine in the 1700s, So what did you do when you had a toothache or a fever? You'd use a plant-based remedy that people like Mary Bloodsworth knew how to make. These skills were usually passed down from generation to generation. But when the witchcraft hysteria began, these natural healers began to be thought of mistakenly as witches. And not much is mentioned about the man that was seen going out to Mary's house. Not even when, a few months later, it was discovered she was pregnant. But come on, we all know what happened. Unfortunately for Mary, he probably also had a hand in branding her a witch and getting rid of her, so as not to be found out to be an adulterer himself. The spirit world, or what is or what isn't on the other side after we die, has always held a fascination for us. So ghosts or apparitions, while we fear them, part of us perhaps has always wondered what it would be like to see one. And the mirror? Mirrors have often been believed to be a portal to the spiritual world. In the past, when a person died— the body would be prepared, and then the coffin would remain in the deceased family's home for viewing and on memorials for a time. While the body was in the home, mirrors would be covered, usually with a black cloth, because it was believed the deceased who had crossed into the spirit world might see their body through the mirror and be confused and cross back into the living world, thus haunting the home with their presence. And nobody wanted that. But what about the Bloody Mary ritual? 
Why did it become a popular pastime at sleepovers and away camps for kids to play at conjuring up a ghost? Psychologists believe that children between the ages of 9 and 12 years old crave excitement that they get by pushing the boundaries, but not actually doing something overtly dangerous. So they do things like make prank phone calls, remember that, play ding-dong ditch, that's where one kid dares another to ring a doorbell and run away before they can get caught, and other obnoxious activities. And of course, tell ghost stories and create dares. The rush pre-adolescents get from these dares helps them to release real anxieties and fears they start to experience at this age, when they are transitioning from being a child to becoming a young adult. The tale of La Llorona was, of course, a warning, especially to girls, and something that was a familiar refrain in my Mexican-American family. Number one, don't be vain. Both the Bloody Mary and La Llorona stories had this theme. My grandmother's warning would be, don't think you're all that. It was a sin to be vain or prideful, and you'd be punished for it in the end. And number two, don't be too big for your britches. Or don't think you're better than others, like the beautiful Maria did. This, again, would doom you to suffer. She felt herself worthy of more than what she was born into, and that cost her dearly. This is kind of a screwed-up notion now. Now, we tell our children to reach for the stars, etc. But it was probably true that back in the day, you might need to be satisfied by what life dealt you, because it was much harder, sometimes impossible, to rise above your situation. I would say this was true especially for immigrant families and the very poor. Perhaps they were trying to save their children from frustration and heartbreak. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. So, the moral of the story is, we love to be scared. And maybe we learn about our common values at the same time in these stories. It's an interesting way to look at these tales. But most of all, they're just fun to tell in the dark. And that'll do it for this special Halloween episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. To give feedback or suggest show topics, you can find me on Facebook at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter at Upon a Crime. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and rate and comment if you like it. Until next time, beware of things that go bump in the night. Happy Halloween!
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.